Welcome to the Index Podcast, hosted by Alex Kahaya. Plug in as we explore new frontiers with Web3 and the decentralized future. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Index, brought to you by The Graph, where we talk with the entrepreneurs building the next wave of the internet. I'm your host, Alex Kahaya, and in today's episode of the Index, I'm excited to welcome Logan Jastrzemski, the co-founder and managing partner of Frictionless Capital, which is a thesis-driven fund investing in blockchains and dApps at scale. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for bringing me on, Alex. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So just for background, like everybody, we met, I guess we met initially in New York, right? At NFT NYC. It was really funny. Like, I feel like we really hit it off and we both are podcasters. And then I was like kind of done with the events and hungry and wanted a steak. And I was strolling around New York City and I literally walked into like the most random little hole in the wall steak place and Logan was sitting there. I'm definitely more of an introvert. I go to these events and they're fun. I get to meet a lot of people, but when I'm done, I'm done. And so I just pulled up Google Maps and looked for a steakhouse nearby and (laughs) wanted to get some steak, but we had a really awesome conversation. Yeah, I agree. It was a lot of fun. It was part of the reason why I wanted do a little show swap here. Why don't we start off with just tell everybody kind of your background and how you got into doing what you're doing today. Sure. I started my career out in Silicon Valley. Really just wanted to be in the Bay, be on the product side and be with a lot of smart technical people. And so I figured out how to do that out of undergrad, got the opportunity to join product at Expedia Group. But then shortly after, got the opportunity to join Tesla. And I was very excited about the Tesla opportunity. I always admired what Tesla had built with their cars, kind of kind of how future thinking they were, and just being able to really change the game and not be afraid to kind of push the mainstream narrative and challenge that. And so... I wanted to go there and learn how they thought about product and their product process. And it was super interesting. I learned a lot. I ultimately got to lead the supercharging team that handled the software for charging the vehicles worldwide. And it was fun, but I had one foot in Tesla, one foot in crypto. And I got involved in crypto in 2017, kind of kept with it throughout the bear market. And really once DeFi summer started happening on Ethereum, I got very interested again and decided to step back from Tesla and focus on crypto full time. Spent about a year kind of applying what I learned from Tesla to the blockchain industry, taking my product background, looking at the analytics, trying to understand the technical nuance of how blockchains scale. And ultimately decided to start a fund after nobody would hire me because they thought I didn't know anything in the industry. And so I was in a fortunate place to uh, start a fund. And now we're a little bit contrarian in the space, but it's been a fun journey. Wait, what led people to that conclusion that you don't know anything about the space? Like, it's kind of interesting. It was really funny. Just having kind of PTSD from 2017, I knew the bull market was not going to last forever. And I wanted to get into the investing world. I interviewed at several prominent funds. I won't name them, but they all said that I did not know too much about the industry, about blockchains. And it was really funny to me on these calls because 
after spending a year of just like literally being on my computer for a minimum of 12 hours a day trying to be able to articulate these things, I knew I knew more than them. And I feel like I kind of went into that research phase after Tesla, much more of an Ethereum maximalist and came out with a different point of view. And I think at the time, Ethereum was really the cool kid on the block. And so if you were not a fan of Ethereum, you were kind of against the mainstream point of view. And so when I challenged that, I think it was a little bit different than what they were used to. And they couldn't really push back on why I thought the way I did. And so, yeah, ultimately, they decided to pass and not hire me. So this is like 2020, 2019. Where are we in history? No. So I departed Tesla end of 2020 and then spent the entire year of 2021 just deep diving the space at the end of 21, kind of really at the end of the bull market. And November, December timeframe, I started applying for firms. And we ultimately, my business partner and I got the fund up frictionless capital in June. It took us a while to actually set up the fund. I would say we're now fully operational just since the beginning of this year. It takes much longer to actually set up a fund than I initially realized. Sometimes these things are ignorance is bliss, but it's been a long journey. And what was the thing that you saw that they that they didn't see? What's the insight? After paying $1,000 for a Uniswap on ETH, I just got a little sad. I was told Ethereum was going to be the future of France. And just by using it, seeing how much latency there was and how kind of slow it was to actually interact with things. I think everybody that probably listens to this podcast has done some Ethereum transaction on chain. You hit submit on MetaMask and then you just kind of wait. And that waiting period, at least for me personally, was definitely anxious. And so I was just looking for different alternatives. And I think when I looked at the analytics on Uniswap, on OpenSea, the dashboards that were hosted on Dune Analytics, I saw that there was only a couple hundred thousand people using these. Ultimately, the lifetime amount of addresses that have interacted with this is less than 10 million. And so I just wanted to look at different things. Ultimately, I was able to articulate kind of the four core kind of pieces of blockchain infrastructure. I would say that is consensus, the virtual machine, how you do data propagation, and then storage. And once I was able to articulate that after a year, I could really start to build upon each of those individual components and start to compare and contrast blockchains in a non-biased way that I would often see too much on Twitter because everybody loves to pump their bags, but I really wanted to do as much of an unbiased comparison as possible. Okay. You said there's four, right? Four different categories. Correct. You know, I tend to agree with you. I had a very similar experience back in like 2017. I got into the space in 2016 and like December of 2016, started working full time in 2017. I remember the first time I did anything in crypto, I bought $1,000 worth of ETH and I went and took out a loan on, I can't remember if it was like Avi or whatever, but I did that because I was just wanting to see, like, I was like, what is this all about? I've never done, I like DeFi, you know, like, let's try it out. I kind of grew how active I was doing things like that. And I remember the first time I actually like probably six months later, I actually sent like a meaningful amount of money onto Ethereum and I was sweating bullets, like waiting for that money to show up. That anxiety is real. I met Tolin Raj very early on when they, I think they had just moved into like one of their first offices in San Francisco and, you know, immediately got the vision and, and scalability is already like people were talking about it, right? Like they believed scalability mattered. 
And the first time I ever did a transaction on Solana was much later, but it was like night and day, you know, like you click a button and send money and it shows up in the other place, like instantly almost. I mean, relatively, right? It's almost too good to be true. You're like, all right, what are they doing here? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this is not possible. It reminds me when I was a kid and you're like the first time I had like a computer with dial up and aim, right? And instant messenger that dates me. I'm 37. So, you know, I remember those days. That's really how we kind of like to explain it to our investors. The blockchain industry as a whole is going through a very similar transition as the internet did in the 90s. You have the first iteration of blockchains, which was Bitcoin inventing kind of self-sovereignty and self-custody. Ethereum came in and expanded upon that with smart contracts. And now what you're seeing, I think, is the third generation of blockchains where you have self-sovereignty, smart contracts, and scale. And I think if you look back and like study products at all, you'll see that it's normally not the first products and that come to market. It really takes a couple iterations. You learn what works, what doesn't work. And those iterations are really the things that ultimately push the industry forward. You do have some first mover advantage. Happy to kind of talk about that. But if the technology is truly, say, 10x, 100x, better in each of these product iterations, it's hard, in my point of view, to overcome that, even if you have some type of first mover advantage. Yeah, I agree. So, all right, very slowly, tell me the four categories again, and then let's start with from the top and dig into each of those verticals and talk about it. Sure. I would say the biggest thing to actually scale blockchain is the data propagation or bandwidth. I would say the next important thing is probably the virtual machine, so the execution environment. The third one being the consensus algorithm. How do you agree upon the state of the world? And then the fourth thing is, how do you store all this data that is created in all these different nodes? Okay, so data propagation, virtual machine. Virtual machines. Consensus and storage. These are the four things that matter. Okay, Yes. what is data propagation like you said, data propagation and bandwidth. And I, I just like, I want to break it down for people who don't, even, like a lot of people don't even know what bandwidth is. They've heard of it, but they don't know actually what it is. So what is data propagation and bandwidth and, and why does it matter? People have to remember blockchains are not super new. They're are like reinventing kind of computer science or reinventing the computer. It's just a different way to kind of organize information. When you start to have say two computers or more that have to agree upon information they have to communicate with each other all a blockchain is it's literally (laughs) as the name suggests a chain of blocks and when you have a block all you're doing is filling some amount of data in that block to communicate what transitions or what type of on the ledger what would you like to update So you can think of it as there's these chain of blocks, which are ultimately data. And then in these blocks, you're asking them to change or update the world in a certain point of view. The biggest thing and why bandwidth is ultimately so important is because if you can propagate or send more data across the network, you can imagine you can do much bigger blocks. And the faster you can do those blocks as well, the more overall throughput that you can have in the network. And this, again, is why we go back to the analogy of 
early days of the internet where you had 56k modems, then you had broadband, and then fiber optics. Every time that jump happened, from a technical point of view on the internet side, engineers could build more interesting applications. And again, this is what we think is going to happen in the blockchain world. You had smaller blocks. Now newer networks are coming online. Even with Ethereum, the, if you kind of look at where they started to where they want to go with proto dank sharding and the full dank sharding roadmap, at the end of the day, really what they're doing is increasing the amount of data that they can propagate. So larger blocks. These newer networks are just taking that to a much higher level where you can have massive blocks and they're very fast. So the faster the blocks, the bigger they are, the more interesting things ultimately the engineers will be able to create. I'll stop there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it actually does. You, know, you often hear about people talking about block space, which is what you're talking about. It, you can literally think of it as physical space. Exactly. If you like take it all the way down to the hardware, right? It really is physical space in the hardware that processes information. We're getting into some computer science terms, but it's one of the most interesting things for me in this, in this that I've been scratching this itch since like 2016 is the actual physical infrastructure it takes to build a decentralized network. And I think it's something a lot of people don't fully grasp how important that part of it is. The bandwidth is the fundamental bottleneck in all blockchains. So what you'll see and what the industry is now kind of diverging upon is how to do that. You kind of have Ethereum where they're trying to be a settlement layer. So they started with smaller blocks. They're increasing that with dank sharding. And what they're doing is data compression for layer twos. So you're batching transactions and submitting those to the layer ones. It's an interesting technique. Ultimately, we'll get into the virtual machines later, but it's one point of view. The other point of view is kind of, and where we ultimately think the space will end up is kind of these monolithic, large, single shard blockchains like Solana, like Sui, like Aptos, like Say, where you have very high data propagation and they keep the compute and everything kind of all in that one ecosystem. The other kind of point of view is either the Cosmos or Avalanche point of view where you're breaking these down into individual either subnets or Cosmos zones. And the benefit there is you can have a little bit more customization and you can keep the hardware requirements small. So the industry, whatever your point of view is on the correct architecture design, there is no way ultimately around having to increase bandwidth to actually scale. You can either segment that into smaller components and kind of add those up. You can do the kind of next generation blockchain architecture design where you keep that all in one and just scale it. Or you can do the Ethereum approach where you slightly increase it over time, but you do the data compression with the layer twos. So they're all different approaches, but at the end of the day, there's no way that you can actually scale blockchains unless you increase the requirements bandwidth and compute. And so, yeah, bandwidth is the biggest bottleneck in any of these blockchains. I mean, is this also what the problem that like compressed NFTs solve? I don't know how familiar you are with compressed NFTs, but like on Solana, you know, the metadata standard Metaplex initially built, it cost a decent amount. It's still really cheap relative to other blockchains, but at scale, it starts to add up pretty significantly on like how much it costs to mint, say, a million NFTs. Compressed NFTs essentially does this batching, right? Where you like stuff. My understanding of my Merkle tree roots is that it's essentially just like a database. Like it's a structure of a database. I mean, you're stuffing all this data so that it fits. You know, you can basically... 
like if you think of bandwidth as a pipe that data can go through, it made the things that are going through the pipe carry more data. It didn't actually make the pipe bigger. It just made that the it just made the thing that like sends data through the pipe take more information in it. Exactly. You can almost think of it in a dumb way as a layer two that is built into Solana. So you have compression for a specific amount of NFTs that live on chain instead of kind of it being its own separate layer two. And the biggest thing there is not particularly the bandwidth on Solana. Solana actually has more bandwidth and is not capacity limited. It's more demand limited. But the point with compression is really that storage component. Blockchains have to assign some amount of value to the storage. And by using compression, you're using less storage on the blockchain. And so you can keep the amount that it actually costs to mint a million NFTs at a hundred bucks, which I think for us, if I were actually to back up for one second, the whole reason why I went down the scaling rabbit hole and really studied the architectures was because I just want people to use blockchains. I really want people to actually interact with things on chain take out a loan in Aave, be able to do a trade on-chain, be able to do gaming and NFTs on-chain. But today that just doesn't exist. And I think if you look back, we've continuously been bottlenecked by infrastructure, by high costs. And I think the unfortunate thing for me today is if you're a application engineer and you find some amount of product market fit on-chain, that chain, if it doesn't scale, will be your limiting factor. And so really turning this block space from a luxury as it has been designed in these earlier ecosystems to a commodity where you can kind of increase the amount of hardware to increase the load is really what I want to see because I just want people to use blockchains. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one thought for that is at least the way we thought about it at my company, Olaplex, right? Like we've architected our software so that it's as modular as possible. So we can just bolt on different chains and different protocols for this exact reason. Because, I mean, look, on Solana, there are a lot of really interesting things we can do that you can't do anywhere else today. But, you know, there might be a new technology later on that like serves our customers better. And so you got to be able to use it and you got to be able to do it quickly. Our like long term vision is actually an operating system for the space that like the architecture supports, creates like a normalized layer for this data and the indexing and things like that. And for the protocols that like the app stuff is just you write an app once and it just like it just plugs into whatever chains are underneath. Like it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever built like a Rails app or anything like that before, but you know, there's like a config file and like that's where you say like, am I using Solana or Sui or Aptos for this like NFT app? So devs don't have to actually make these hard choices anymore. I think that's the future of the apps. I think it works. There's going to be applications that just want the highest performance possible. And if that is kind of your North Star, then I think you're going to have to build it natively. If you don't want the highest performance possible, then I do think you can kind of do a deploy in all. The problem is you'll just suffer a little bit of performance degradation. And maybe this is like a good segue into the virtual machines or the execution environments and why they're so important. You mentioned, though, that you can't do any of this stuff today and you just really want to be able to do that. I mean, do you feel that way about Solana? Like, and not just Solana, but like Aptos, Sui2, like these are up and comings that have scalability built in. What's your take on like the current state? I mean, are we really still pretty far away from being able to achieve that vision? I don't think so. 
how I communicate it now is even if you have a Ferrari, you cannot teleport to 200 miles per hour. These newer blockchains, the next generation blockchains that really keep everything kind of logically centralized in one chain, you have very high throughput and you can increase the compute capacity to meet demand. They're Ferraris. But if there's not demand, you won't see the Ferrari or the blockchain really go as fast as possible or have high TPS. So I think these blockchains, they're capable of supporting mass adoption. But because the industry as a whole has not really created applications that I'd say web two customers love, the demand is not there. And so even if you built it today, I think it could support it. You just have to build killer apps. And we've kind of always had this like chicken egg problem where the infrastructure sucks or the application sucks. I think we're now just getting to the point where you can actually do both and have that at scale. Interesting. Yeah. And you're just saying we haven't been stress tested. Of all the chains that I think Solana has been stress tested the most, but I agree with you that like real scale, like Web2 scale, we have not found yet. That product market fit from an app standpoint isn't there yet. All right. Let's talk about VMs. What is a VM? Why does it matter for blockchain? That's definitely a Web2 thing. But, you know, what's a virtual machine and why do we care? I'll break it into two components. They're not super complex. Again, going back to what we ultimately articulated with the block space is people will submit transactions to be included in those blocks. If I say I submit my transaction, send $10 of USDC to Alex, that chain has to be reflected in the network. And the virtual machine or the execution environment is ultimately the one that will make that transition or the money move from my account to Alex's account. Today, there's two primary versions of virtual machines. Those are single-threaded virtual machines, and then there's paralyzed virtual machines. Single-threaded were the early instantiations of virtual machines that existed. Ethereum is a single-threaded virtual machine. All this really means is one transaction has to be executed after another. So if I want to send Alex $10 and my girlfriend wants to send her sister $10, those transactions, even though they're not really dependent on each other, cannot happen simultaneously. They have to be executed one after another. And the reason why these serialized virtual machines really got created was because they're relatively easy to make. I mean, I'll I'll say that, but their paralyzed virtual machines are just a little bit more complex. And so again, going back to product iterations, it just takes a couple iterations for us to really figure out what works and what does not work. On the paralyzed virtual machine side, as the name implies, you can do things in parallel. And this is extremely important for a couple reasons. One, modern compute today is really designed to take advantage of paralyzed virtual machines. Everybody's probably heard the debate of Moore's law, whether it's dying or not dying. The answer is it's a little bit complicated. If you're trying to add more transistors into a single chip or a single core, we've pretty much maxed that out. But what we have done to increase the amount of compute is add more cores. So instead of a single core having more transistors, we just add more and more cores to have more compute. And if you have more cores on a paralyzed virtual machine, you can take advantage of those. 
And so because Moore's law is semi-slowing down, it's harder to do more transactions serially. It, we've kind of hit that bottleneck. But to increase more throughput and more capacity, if you can utilize the additional cores that these chips have, you can do more throughput. And then, like I said, I can send Alex $10 and my girlfriend can send her sister $10. And if those transactions are not happening or not dependent on each other, they can happen simultaneously. And that's a really big breakthrough. You can imagine how many different use cases are not actually overlapping or dependent on each other. So if you can execute those when they're not overlapping, it's a big, big win for scalability. All right. For people who are not like familiar with hardware or computer science, and I think you did a great job explaining that, but I want to just like go a little bit into some different detail here. A virtual machine is different than a physical machine. Like my computer is right in front of me and it's running processes on it, right? That's a physical machine right in front of me. A virtual machine, typically like hardware that's actually running a network, at least on Solana, right? It's bare metal hardware, which means it's literally the metal and the wires and like the chip and in the cores and all that physical stuff. And then you have to install the validator software, which is what connects to the network and creates that virtual machine. And the virtual machine isn't just that machine. It's all the machines. It's every computer, the servers that get consensus and store data and stuff like that. And the cores that Logan's talking about are literally the physical pieces of hardware inside of that machine that run these parallelized processes, right? That send, you know, I send some money to my wife, Logan sends money to his girlfriend. They both get there super fast through different cores. It's, I mean, you could think of it as like a highway with, with multiple lanes on it, right? And it is super important. It does remove that, that bottleneck and increase the throughput. So like bandwidth is one thing that increases throughput and then the VMs and how those are architected and the hardware underneath, it also increases the throughput. And I would say they have one other additional kind of highlight over the paralyzed virtual machines over the single threaded. So one thing that we've observed in blockchains such as Ethereum is they have global fee markets. So say an NFT mint is happening, but you want to do a Uniswap transfer or exchange at the same time. Because all these transactions are executed serially one after another, there's no way to actually isolate those specific contracts to increase fees or decrease fees. So in Ethereum or even specific Ethereum virtual machine, the EVM, all gas is kind of treated equal. So you can imagine that's kind of a problem when this NFT mint is going on. Everybody wants the NFT, but you're just trying to do a simple Uniswap transfer and you have to pay a thousand bucks or 500 bucks, a hundred bucks because the NFT mint is going on. What paralyzed virtual machines allow because you know which contracts you're going to be interacting with prior to the execution actually happening, you can isolate the fees to specific contracts. And that is extremely, again, important because you can lower the fees for anything that is not having a high amount of activity. That is huge. Honestly, a light bulb just went off for me about like some of the functionality that recently got released on Solana, right? Like Mad Lads, right? Like 10K PFP project that dropped a couple of weeks ago went off without any hiccups on the network. Like the network didn't even skip a beat. And yeah, I'm sure some traders who are like more advanced people trying to buy that, that NFT 
use this prioritization fee market stuff to get like and get alpha on just like normal people who are trying to mint and get there faster and get priority and like kind of skip the line of when their transaction goes through to buy the NFT, right? But they're paying more for that and they're willing to pay for that as a free market. Cool. But then like, you know, people who are trading on a decentralized exchange, you know, swapping USDC for Seoul or like other on-chain assets, those those markets, the use case there, the contracts that actually process those transactions were just not impacted at all. It's big. It's a big user experience increase. So you're getting more throughput because you're taking advantage of modern hardware. And then you also get better user experience because you're isolating hotspots in these different ecosystems and different applications. And you're only increasing the fees for a specific contract that is very active. If the other ones are not active on the network or have lower demand, those fees stay really cheap. And I think as we've seen in blockchains thus far, the fees matter a lot. And I think, again, this is one of the things that hold back the industry and being able to isolate those to specific contracts is going to push the industry forward. Yeah. And the fees do matter a lot. And we can talk about this at the end of the show if you have an opinion, but like the recent stuff with Metaplex and like increasing the fee or inserting fees and at the protocol layer has caused a huge rift in the ecosystem for that reason. Like I think... Maybe they underestimated how how much the fees matter to to builders, but I don't want to get us off track. I mean, you can talk about it now if you want to, but we still have to cover consensus and storage. I mean, I'm not opposed to them adding fees. At the end of the day, blockchains and like these people building these companies, these protocols, these dApps need to make money. And I think sometimes we get a little bit too caught up into Twitter. And like the small nuance, there's a lot of people that use blockchains that live on Twitter. So I wouldn't completely ignore the feedback. But at the end of the day, we have to remember they're running a business. They have employees and they need to make money. And if this is a business decision that they think they need to do to survive long term, I'm not totally against it. Yeah. And I'm not against them making money either. I think that they should find a a scalable business model that has product market fit. Right. And clearly this one does not. Like, I think based on the reaction, I can tell you the impacts outside of compression, the impacts for us with our customers, which are like big enterprises are pretty severe, not just from a cost perspective, but also a risk perspective, because they also changed the license like seven months ago from a GPL license to this like restrictive, you can't fork it if you remove the fees or if you really don't like anything, you can't fork it license. And so that inserts massive platform risk. And then you layer on the communication and how they clearly didn't actually talk to a lot of people in the ecosystem about the impact of this thing. So now we're like, they're like, don't worry, we'll change it at some point if it's not working. And we're like, well, you know, we're all running businesses here. How can we accept that risk that you control our destiny now? That's a problem. With a centralized organization owning a protocol like that, I think is a problem. I think maybe if we use Magic Eden and Tensor as an example, Magic Eden was kind of a monopoly on Solana in terms of NFTs. Like they had 90 plus percent market share and no one really thought they could be toppled. There was a couple like instances where maybe people took like 10, 20 percent, but they were able to gain that back. And it wasn't really until Tensor came. It was a two person team and started just out executing Magic Eden on Solana where they're like, oh shit, we need to go back and actually focus on our core product. And maybe the some of the things that we were pushing off or kind of had like a stronghold on 
we should go back and revisit some of those conversations. And I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, people that believe anybody has really won any blockchain, I would say two, everyone's really on the starting line. There's not very many people actually using these networks. There's some like good amount of TVL, but the industry as a whole is still less like approximately a trillion. It's small. And I think if you build a cooler app, if you can out execute someone that will ultimately be reflected in the market. So even though they have kind of majority of power today on the Metaplex side, if they really continue to go down this path and everybody <laughs> votes against it and vote with their feet and just stop using the protocol, someone will make something else. And I think they'll ultimately lose. Yeah. So, and I think it's a good thing ultimately. Like I think we need more diversity and look, I have a ton of respect for the Metaplex team and the, and the builders there. Like we've worked with them pretty extensively and we've even contributed to the source code. I was really bummed out about the license change because part of the value prop for us contributing is that it was open source. And so that kind of killed that ethos for us. But I do think like long-term building a better stack of technology in general that supports multiple players in different ways that basically brings down a lot of the moat that they have right now around distribution of these NFTs is a really good thing. And it just now I hope that it's a wake up call and we can get get a bunch of people focused on solving that problem so that the space can kind of move forward. So, all right. Consensus, though. What's consensus? Consensus is an interesting one. I mean, ultimately, in these blockchains, you have to agree upon the state of the network. So let me start broadly and then I can kind of like zoom down. Let me start with decentralization. On the decentralization side, there's really two important metrics that you need to look at when you're objectively viewing how to quantify decentralization, and this will ultimately kind of wrap into consensus, is at 33% of the network. So if a network or individual party has 33% of the stake weight for the network, you can start to slow down transactions and the finality of the network. And this is important because in blockchains, you have to agree upon the state of information and you need majority of people to do that. Not only the majority, but two thirds, two thirds plus one to be exact. So if you're able to gain 33% of the total stake weight or a number of independent parties are able to collude to ultimately get 33% of the stake weight, you can start slowing down or causing the network to no longer come to consensus. And then if you're able to achieve two thirds of the stake weight, then you can do just complete double spends. And so from the consensus side, that is important. I like to kind of quantify decentralization on, it's called the Nakamoto coefficient, where the number of independent parties that ultimately allow you to reach that one third percent of stake weight, that is important again, because you can censor transactions and then the number of independent full nodes. The full nodes is super important because as long as one independent copy of the ledger exists, then you can recover the network. So I kind of frame the consensus conversation with that, just to keep those in mind, 33%, 66%, and then the number of full nodes for decentralization. That being said, there's a couple of ways to kind of tackle consensus. Avalanche is probably doing the most unique consensus algorithm. They're doing probabilistic finality. So essentially, they actually have a really cool diagram on the website, but 
as the name implies, it kind of looks like an avalanche where there's a certain neighborhood of nodes that communicate. You want to do a consensus change and they're ultimately allow you to propagate the votes of this transaction execution to your neighbor next to you. The goal of, I'll kind of spare all the technical details, the goal of this ultimately is to do less than N squared. The N squared number is extremely important for blockchains. It's just the number of votes. So in consensus, I vote to the network or send my transaction. The network sends it back. So you're doing at least a minimum of N squared votes. And what Avalanche is trying to do by making it a little bit more probabilistic is having less than N squared. So the consensus is a little bit, it gets super technical. But if I maybe were to reticulate it, the important things are one third, two thirds, and then whether you have kind of probabilistic finality or you're kind of doing classical Byzantine fault tolerance where you have N squared of the networking overhead. The N squared is just a lot of messages and it's kind of why these blockchain architectures have kept relatively small node counts because the more nodes you add, it's just a lot of messaging and a lot of bandwidth. And this is what you see on Solana. Actually, a majority of the hardware and the bandwidth for Solana is not going to purely transactions of using the network. It's going to and paying for decentralization because the networking and the overhead of consensus just uses a lot of bandwidth. Yep. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> familiar with that problem. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the different solutions out there. I and mean, consensus is a tricky one. I mean, we probably don't have enough time to kind of dig into this, maybe on another episode, but I would love to learn more about like the comparisons between like something like Sui, Aptos. I guess they're probably similar since they're like copies of each other and like something like Solana. Sui actually has a different consensus than all of them. So in consensus, you there's also ordering of transactions. So again, this is important because if two people are trying to do fight for the same state, especially you can think of it in a order book, I want to get to a certain order before you. If I submit and hit the transaction button before you, Alex, I want to make sure that there's a timestamp where that I actually get that transaction and you do not get it. So we have to order the transactions in which they came in. And that's state. State is literally the status of the world at the time of this transaction. Like I bought it, you didn't buy it. We were both trying to buy it, but I got in before you, so it's mine. What SWE does, if they, again, this goes back to the parallel processing of the virtual machine, if the transactions are not overlapping, you can skip the ordering step because there's no need to actually order because I'm just sending something to you and it's not a contentious piece of state. There's not multiple people trying to access that at the same time. As long as that's not being accessed by multiple people, you can skip ordering and that really just allows for very, very fast finality probably I would say some of the quickest in the industry. And so they actually have two consensus algorithms, one for just the normal ordering step, kind of similar to Solana, it's N squared overhead. And if you skip the ordering step just via parallelization and there's no overlapping, then it just kind of skips consensus and the entire thing is paralyzed and the benefit of it is having extremely fast finality. Okay, interesting, really interesting. All right, we only have a couple minutes left, so let's jump into storage. 
Storage, I mean, it will be a pretty big problem. The problem today is the first iterations of blockchains have very low throughput on the bandwidth side. The blocks are not big. They're not very fast. They're relatively slow. So, I mean, I think the Bitcoin blockchain, I haven't looked in a while, is maybe a terabyte, maybe Ethereum's a terabyte or two. In grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of hardware. Once you're actually running at high throughput and high data rates, you're going to have a lot of things that you actually have to store. I think Solana, once they're targeting one gigabyte per second of data rate, it would be four petabytes. Uh, four petabytes is, I believe, 4,000 terabytes of data per year. And so this actually will become a slight problem in like ultimately how to store this. There's a number of like unique ways to do this. Again, it kind of comes back to can you do it serially or can you do it paralyzed? And modern solid state drives are allow you to kind of write to multiple threads. Again, kind of going back to the hardware component, if you can write to multiple threads simultaneously, you can effectively use these solid state drives better. So again, it comes down to the hardware. And I think this, if I were to like back up again and say the biggest differences between the old generation architecture and the newer generations that are coming out is there's, they're hyper optimized to take advantage of modern hardware. You increase compute with more cores. You can do that with a paralyzed virtual machine. If you increase the data bandwidth, the network can handle that. If you have to increase the data bandwidth, you need more storage. Storage is ultimately getting cheaper. They're adding more threads. So it all kind of plays in line with each other, but it's very much focused on the hardware aspect. I'm smiling because I'm thinking to myself, I'm definitely not hiring you. You do not know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a funny journey. <laughs> We're getting towards the top of the hour of the show, and I always ask this to everybody, but what have I not asked you that I should have asked? I think like... The hard part in investing truly is being contrarian. And if your opinion is popular, if you kind of believe that you have knowledge that other people have, but everybody also believes what you have, is it very contrarian? And the only way to really make outsized returns is to believe something that the majority do not believe and be correct. And I think the hard part in blockchain often is just kind of following the herd because it can be technical, but understanding that there are lots of nuances, the industry is small and maybe the way that the world was is not going to be the way the world progresses. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting because I, I think that entrepreneurs, like the best ones, see things that other people don't. They see the opportunities and the, and the need in the market, especially when you're talking about like cutting edge technology, which is the space that you're investing, right? Like it's one thing if you're like Warren Buffett, you know, you're investing in a totally different kind of business or, or entrepreneur, right? But if you're talking about startups, like true startups, new technologies, then you do need to find those people who see the things that other people don't, who, that are contrarian. One really hard thing about just to like drill into it a little bit more is like you, Logan, have a contrarian view or or at least had, right? Like I think that like probably more people would agree with you today than they used to. And so that was the case for you. The hard thing is, is to recognize the person you're investing in has a, like to, to hear that and be like, and question yourself, like be like, uh, this sounds like total crap or this is crazy or this is, you know, but then like to reevaluate and to really dig in and question your own, your own prejudices and your own assumptions is kind of like the hardest thing, I think. 
100%. And I think the saying goes, strong opinions weakly held. But going back to the time at Tesla, it's extremely important if you can actually articulate these core bottlenecks and build from there. Because then you understand where the world starts from and you can use those as building blocks. If you're just using analogies, it's very hard to like build a house on a sand foundation. You need that solid foundation. And I, again, I think this is why it's important to spend a lot of time just being able to articulate what are the core building blocks? How do you overcome them? And what are the bottlenecks to actually, I don't know, scale the industry, scale the networks? That's awesome. Thanks. I think it's a great note to end, end the show on. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Alex. You just heard the Index Podcast with your host, Alex Kahaya. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a five-star rating and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite streaming platform. New episodes available every other Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.